Good morning. Good to see you all here today. Uh, nice surprise. Uh, this is significantly bigger than what we've had. Um, great. Uh, I'm glad you're all here. And uh, um, we're going to start out with a word of prayer. And, uh, and then we'll um, have a little discussion and get into the text here. So um, for those of you who haven't been part of what, I, what we've been doing here, I've been trying to bring in some prayers. Um, I, I like to say uh, that uh, we're not the first Christians to ever walk on this earth, and it's you know, beneficial to look to what those who went before us have done. And, uh, and this is a prayer that would have been written probably in the 1960s, um, you know, so it's it's pretty pretty new. And the title of the prayer is that the word may it should be that the word may work in us. I have a typo there. O God, Almighty and All Merciful, once chaos gave way before your command, and your creation stood forth structured, wonderful, to call forth melody from all the singing stars. Our wild rebellion shivered and blackened all that called a chaos down more fearful than the first. And you have spoken a word more powerful, your word of love, your son. And you have made us uh, intoler gift intolerable, the first fruits of your new and righteous world. You have made us sons, uh, gift intolerable. How shall we show forth the splendor of the world to come, the home of righteousness, which shall one day live here unbroken and entire? We cannot, but your word can. Oh, let it work in us, that word implanted in our midst, your creative word, and let us bring forth summer fruits for you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, so this was written by a man by the name of Martin Franzman. Uh, do, do any of you know that name? Um, Martin Franzman um, was a uh, professor at Concordia Seminary, um, in the 60s and 70s, which is a very turbulent time in our church body, uh, and um, very much a, 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 a great leader for that, that time period of the church. And he, uh, he's written a couple hymns, and um, you might know one of them as, uh, Thy strong word cleave the darkness. You know that one? We sing that one? Um, he wrote that. And uh, Ed, you once commented that there's a hymn that you like um, about uh, the earth is not a darkened moat or something like that. Yes. He wrote that too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, this is part of a poetry book that, that put together, and all of his poems are, are in, the, in that book are, are prayers as well. And... Um, it, it kind of got me to thinking a, a little bit about, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do want to spend a little bit. Um, what is the role of art and faith? You ever think about that? Because previous generations thought about that a lot. You know, if you go to a cathedral um, in Europe, you know, you will see art all over the place, you know? Um, architecture gold is, is, yeah, there'll be fine gold and all kinds of fancy, yeah um, 
What, stained glass? Yeah. Painting. And there'll be paintings around and, and the like. Um, why art? Because for lots and lots and lots of years, people couldn't read. And this way they could see and get it into their heads. Okay, that is a pragmatic reason. And it's a good reason. You know, so the uh, the church that I grew up in, we had um, stained glass windows. And in the front was the resurrection above the altar. Back behind the organ was the crucifixion. And then all the way around uh, were basically the, the story of the gospel, just little images, little glimpses of the gospel. And there's an element of what, what you're talking about there, that, you know, you know, it helped to solidify uh, the story as you went through and you could see these images. Well, plus the well, word of God is universal, so everybody can see it in those pictures. Right, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. It's in, it's in a, a, a medium that anybody can receive, right? Yeah. Ed? Yeah, well, for me, other than overtly, yes, this is for the bunks when they get here, other than overtly religious art, which has to deal with biblical themes, there is just the the opening into the beauty of, of the creation, and in terms of making art, that's that's the big reward for me. Yeah, so I think that in art there's a confession of faith, mm -hmm. or there, at least there can be. Yeah, you know that uh, um, that there is beauty in the world, and why is there beauty in the world? Because there's beauty in God's heart, and it's there for us to receive. And now, as Franzman talks about in, in the poem, you know, our wild rebellion, you know, shivered and blackened. You know, there's damage to the creation. You know, and, and we we see that suffering um, all over the place. I often feel just this, okay. This is kind of a little bit sentimental and weird, but you know, I, I feel a, a little tinge of sadness every time I see like a squirrel flattened on the road. <laughs> and it's not that it, I mean, I grew up eating squirrel. It's not that it's, you know, you know, like a sacred animal or, or, or whatever. It's just, there's a sadness about that. And there, there's definitely something that, that, you know, but there's beauty too. And I think that um, art helps us to engage that beauty. I think that art can also help us to engage sadness in all of our emotions. So, one picture's worth a thousand words, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I was just gonna say, when I lived in Detroit, I was in a city down, in a church downtown. Were you at Historic Trinity? Pardon me? Were you at Historic Trinity downtown? Which church Historical were you at? Trinity, yeah, Lutheran. Yeah. yeah. That church started in 1870, and it started out as a wooden church. And then they finally got the money together and built a cement church, and that was around the Depression. Yeah. And they trusted God for the money and everything. And they, they put um, stained glass windows, and they had American Indians yeah. in it. And they tried to show different you know races and stuff like that to show that God is inclusive of all yep. people. Yep. I thought that was so cool. And that was an important part of the uh, the history of the Lutheran they were huge, Church. Huge, you know, and they put money into that to yeah. have that done. That was an important part of the the history of the Lutheran Church in Michigan, um, 
maybe you've heard of Frankenmuth. There were a whole bunch of little little towns that started with Frank, and there's Frankentrost and Frankenlust and Frankenmuth, and but most of these were connected to evangelism to Native Americans yeah. uh, at one point or another. You know, and that was an important part of they the history have, there. They have German communities yep. in Michigan. Like, uh, I can't think of anything anymore. But. So I'm, I'm going to just throw a couple things out here just regarding our own. Is our building beautiful? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is our building highly decorated? No. no. So our community here um, was once part of Connecticut and you have this uh, um, uh, well New England style Puritan you know and uh, very much you know not a lot of images it's a little bit weird if you go around to all the churches it's kind of like oh I just walked into the same church because they're all in, in this, uh, not all of them, you know, the uh, St. Mary's over here. So St. Mary's is like really modern. Um, have you ever been in there? I am. So, you know, everything in, in, uh, um, in Hudson is supposed to be historic, yeah. you know, when it's a new build. Do you know how they got away with that? They said it's representative of an, a Native American village, and that's like a wigwam. <laughs> I'm like, I think you got somebody on the church or on the, the city council, or you, or there, there's some influence here. Um, but that that was the that was the story of the history part of, of the architecture there. Well, the like, Western Reserve, you know, the brick, and they can't have it too tall. Yep. The signs and everything. Yep. Um, so we are in a New England style, um, which tends to be fairly plain, um, and that goes back to. Uh, the way that they look at the, the commandments, um, the, uh, they, they number the commandments differently. Um, they still hold the first commandment as you shall have no other gods, but then they see the second commandment as um, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. So they really reject the idea of images. Um, we, we just see that as an extension of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. It, the problem isn't making an image as much as it is you know worshiping an image okay uh that, that's the way we look at it um so uh, uh just you know when you look at our architecture it, it's intended to put a put you in a frame of mind for worship yeah. you know so you look up at the front of the sanctuary you know we have our pyramids the pyramids have symbols on them those communicate things they're artistic you know they're, they're beautifully done yep um, you uh, uh, look at the, uh, the the crosses that are in there. It's all intended to be images that communicate, and largely beautiful. And I I, I would like for us to think about beauty as part of our life and part of our worship when. God led the, led the Israelites out of uh, Egypt. He instructed them to make the tabernacle. And when he instructed them to make the tabernacle, you know what he said? He said, go and find the cheapest, plainest stuff that you can find and make me just kind of a rough box that would be good enough. No, that's not what he said, is it? He said, 
gold, porpoise skins, goat skins, the finest, dyed, colored, beautiful. You know, and he wanted it decorated, you know, with, with beauty. And there's definitely something about when we look at how things go together and part of our worship is to bring beautiful things to the Lord. Um, I do think that there is a, uh, I do think that there is a balancing point in this. You know, sometimes we look at the, the wealth that the church has accumulated over the years and like, uh, that's a little bit obscene and uh, we could have done other things. Um, but at the same time, taking time to have things that are, are, are beautiful, I, I think that that's a, a good thing for us. So um, I, I'm actually looking at a, a piece of art that would go over the entryway. I, I've contacted the artist. It's a, a representation of baptism and uh, the life of faith. Um, I want to find out how much it is before I even start talking with people. Because uh, the, one that's, uh, the, the ones that are already you know, kind of printed and framed uh, are already fairly expensive. And I'm like, I, if we can even have a conversation about it, but I haven't heard back from him yet. Um, but I think that it's worth thinking about these areas and thinking about how do, how do we use art to communicate the gospel in our building and to help people know Jesus and know his love. So, uh, We can get a lot of message from the art fits. We can get what? A lot of message from the arts, artifacts because the art, yeah. artifacts. Oh, message, yes. Message. Yeah. Yeah, um, the, the one that I'm looking at, he's a Christian artist out of uh, Michigan, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a beautiful image. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that could be beneficial to us. So. It, it seems to me it ties into stewardship because if you're giving generously to God, after that, if you're seeking beauty or you're seeking to reach out with it, um, you know, if God is your first priority, after that, I, I, I think it's, I mean, you may not want to spend $5 million, but it, it, there may be something within reason. Absolutely. If God's your priority. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so... I think that sometimes we say, you know, we're going to... We're not going to spend money on things that are beautiful because we can spend that money to help our neighbors. Okay. You know, I do think that we should definitely spend money to help our neighbors. You know, uh, that's part of living in, in this world. But at the same time... Um, it's beautiful. Well, think back, think back to when you were a kid. Yes. And, and you were getting something for a parent. And you wanted to give them something good. It's the same kind of idea. Yeah. And if you have the pictures, little kids could relate to the pictures before they can learn how to read. Yeah. And if you're going past, just going past, you can absorb what's in the picture where you don't have time to read it. And when you're getting old and you're not so quick, you can still get what's in the picture. Yeah. So it's a way of talking to us. It's a way of telling us. And you can remember what the picture looked like. Yeah. You don't always remember exactly what the words were. I, I also want to make a point, too, that getting the art is a one-time expense, basically, yeah. unless you renew some of it. And we can continue 
giving to our neighbors yeah. after that one time or during that one time expense and then yep. there are so many things that are not either or they're both and very good yeah yeah picture of jesus welcoming the children that's a good one mm -hmm. yeah you get it in your head and you can't stop seeing it you yep. can't unsee something I think it would be nice to have something because you look around the room right now and the only thing that's religious are the Bibles. There's, you know, this could be a rec center or this could be the, a, it could be anything, but it, to remind people that it's church. Yeah. It's not, like the cross wall. Yeah, the cross wall. Yeah, there, there's some beauty right there. Yeah. I think that. You know, when, like you see all those crosses on the wall there, that's different artists and, it is. and what they, you know, how they relate to Jesus or whatever. But yep. I think we have to draw the line when we start uh, treating things with idolatry. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what it is, even okay. if it's a cross, because God wants us to love him. Yep. And he doesn't want anything to get in the way. That's true. <laughs> that's true. And that can happen. It can happen. I think that's why some churches are so plain, you know, or whatever. Maybe it is. they can't afford a lot of things. But. Well, I, a lot of churches, that, that is a conscious choice. It is a conscious choice. It time. is. Yeah. Yep. So. Like what is that? Hey, Mo, can you keep that door closed? It seems like Jesus, he would escape to mountaintops and gardens and things like that. So mm -hmm. Kind of be surrounded by beauty to worship. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and uh, you know, and we're blessed to have some of that here too, with our prayer path. And you know, you know, did anybody notice the shrubbery outside? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, so yeah. you know, that was made possible by uh, um, some donations from. Uh, some members and uh, um, it looks nice, you know, and, and that matters. Mm -hmm. We were we were in church one day and some deer walked by, and then there was some Canada geese, so they like our church too. <laughs> there you go. That reminded me of a joke, but we don't have that. Yeah. Dad joke, yeah, we need it. So, all right, Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter seven, verse one. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those of you who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. And if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And she marries, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So first, uh, he addresses brothers. Uh, that was very much the custom uh, at the time, and really until very recently, um, you used a, a masculine pronoun uh, as inclusive of, of all people. Um, so I want to be really clear: this is not addressed only to men. Um, and notice that he uses an example of a, uh, a widow. You know. It's, Paul realizes that there are men and women, you know, so uh, he, he is, he's addressing both, um, and, uh, uh, you know, and I think today it's worth saying that these words address both genders and all expressions and confusions thereof. 
that this gospel is for all people, um, no matter where they are uh, on, on that type of a spectrum. So the law, the law is what we naturally know. Um, when you think about, um, think about kids in the schoolyard for a minute. Um, maybe, you know, playing uh, um, some kind of a ball game. Have you ever watched how they negotiate the rules? <laughs> you know, all through the game, you know, they will negotiate and they will argue about, you know, the rules. The law is something that's written on our hearts. We are drawn to the law. Um, and w when, when we deal with the law, it's just very, very natural for us. Uh, as adults, we call that politics. My, my great nephew is taking up baseball, but they have five strikes. He's four years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, we adjust the rules, and uh, and and if we're negotiating the rules, we try to adjust the rules sometimes to our own advantage, and sometimes if we're more altruistic, we try to adjust the rules to help others, right? Um, I, I remember playing with my kids sometimes, and you know. Oh, they get another chance. A do-over. They get a do-over. You know, or, you know, a younger kid might get a do-over and an older kid might not. Well, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. You're correct. Moving on. Um, <laughs> our hearts are always drawn to the law. I've mentioned uh, this, uh, this document called the Heidelberg Disputation in here uh, a few times. And... There's, there's an important idea in the Heidelberg Disputation. This is a, 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 um, a debate that Martin Luther had with a, another theologian by the name of uh, John Eck, Johann Eck. And um, uh, in this document, he describes being a, a theologian of glory. And a theologian of glory is a person who is you know, kind of self-made. They have a, a self-described glory. And it's like the, the rules in the schoolyard. And so basically, in, in the Christian context, we take the law as God has revealed it to us, and then we talk about all the ways that we keep the law. We talk about all the ways that we do what's right and, uh, excuse me, and, uh, you know, and live up to what God has, has called us to be. Um, and so when you look at this, uh, we, we always want to look glorious. We always want to look like we have our act together uh, in, in God's eyes. And so he says, you know, uh, I'm talking to those of you who know the law. I'm talking to those of you who are used to the idea of I earn my place. And, and he says, you know, the law is binding. Um, the, that word binding, uh, it's the same word that's used in chapter 6, verse 14, when it talks about sin no longer having dominion over you, it, sin no longer or death no longer having dominion over Jesus. Um, so when it says it's binding, it means that it's the Lord of, or it rules, or it masters us. And, and so the law, the law dominates us. When we start talking about the freedom that Jesus brings, it's, it's a freedom from the, the, the domination and the condemnation that the law brings. And that domination takes place as long a time as a person lives. And the example then that he will use to, to help us to understand this is, is an example of marriage. Um, and uh, 
it, it says that you know a married woman is bound by law to her husband. Um, when it says married, it literally the word that's translated married literally means under a man. Okay, um, I, I just find these words kind of fascinating how they present pictures, you know, to uh, to to present an idea. Um, and the word husband through the whole Bible is always man, and the word wife is always woman. You know, it just uses it's, it's the context that tells you husband tells you wife. Um, and, uh, and Paul uses an example from marriage. So, what do we call a woman if her husband dies? Widow. A widow. widow. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is an important part of our life as a church. Um, it, you know, the, we walk together through our lifetimes, and we have all of these friends, married, unmarried, you know, never married, um, remarried, um, and uh, um, when a spouse dies, that is, it's a huge moment in somebody's life. Now, before COVID, if you can remember back that far, <laughs> think about the sanctuary at late service. A number of you go to late service here. Lectern side, somewhere third, fourth row. Becky McCoy, Jenny Meyer. You know, you, you would have just this whole group of widows that sat together and they bound together and, and they were there and, and there was a fellowship to that. I'm going to be right up front about this. You know, women tend to do better with this than men do. You know, the widowers that I have dealt with, you know, I've had a couple of them tell me, I just can't walk in the room. I just can't do it. You know, um, uh, I'll talk about uh, Charlie Urey since he's with the Lord. You know, how long ago did, did Norma die? I, I want to say it was like eight, nine years. You know, it wasn't long after I got here. And uh, he hardly ever came back again. And when he did, it was usually like a midweek service. And he would say, Pastor, I'm going to get back. I'm going to get back. I just, I just can't sit in the room. I just can't sit in the room. You know, and these, these ladies, they find each other and they, you know, they bind together and they're like, we're going to sit together. And the guys tend to just kind of drift. And they have a hard time with that. And, and, and uh, I think that this is something that we, we need to think about as part of this reality of our, our, our life of faith uh, together, um, you know that, uh, that that's a hard time for people. So think, you know what I think about that. I think that women don't have a problem socializing like men do, and women can help men draw out things that are on their mind or whatever. I think that women don't really have difficulty doing. Uh, some but, do. If you're not, if you're not married anymore, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe what a man can do, I really don't. Because you have to, you have to seek it. You have to, yeah, have someone to talk to. But I think it's easier for women than men. 
I, I think that there's there's a certain amount of truth in that um, that in, in the way that uh, uh, society kind of shapes and forms us right. that um, um, and I've actually even heard uh, evolutionary um, anthropologists talk about this that um, you know it, it's an adaptation for women to be able to do better at uh, forming relationships but that's not all the way across the board oh. and, and nor is it all the way across the board that that guys do poorly with that but it does sometimes happen um, and I think that it's something that's observable that, you know that women uh, have an easier time in that time of grief coming back yes. and men have a more difficult time just by you know who shows up afterwards and uh, and I think that there are studies that, that show um, that we grieve differently um, but uh, uh, yeah you know we have to think about people where they're at, you know. So um, I'll go back. Uh, uh, Lowell, Lowell Myers, remember Lowell? His wife died in ten, shortly before I came, I believe. And uh, he was very, he was always here, you know, and just very consistent about showing up, you know. But there have been a few since then, really hard to come in. You know, and uh, and I think that for us that means that we need to kind of look out for those people, and you know, how do we help them to stay connected? You know, to to help them to feel comfortable yeah. coming back. Well, yeah. You said man is not made to live alone; they created women, but I think this opposite is true too. Oh, it's not made to be alone. Yeah, I don't think any of us were meant to be. Well, I shouldn't say any of us, because there there are some that seem to have a gift to be able to. To be alone and uh, you know to have that be part of their service to the Lord but uh, uh, on the whole uh, being alone is difficult and uh, we tend to not thrive alone we need that that person who is a compliment um, I think I talked about that in my little Wednesday message compliment with an E mm -hmm. in the middle that, that you match each other yeah so so Paul uses this this example uh, of marriage and uh, um, in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 8 and 9, Paul talks about this again. Uh, the Holy Spirit teaches us. Uh, he says, you know, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You know, so sometimes it's, it's, it's okay to just say, I'm, I'm going to remain single. Um, I'm going to comment on that last little bit here. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. I think that this is something that, that um, we're not getting right in the church right now. Um, we are we're teaching kids to put marriage off further and further. Yeah. You know, and... You know, we're like, we, you need to have these skills and you need to have these things in order to have a happy and successful life. I don't know. I can tell you that uh, as a person who got married my second year of seminary, my grades went up <laughs> after I was married. You know. How were your grades? <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not, and I'm not poo-pooing education by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not. I, education matters. You know, but there's 
godly wisdom here. Yeah, I, I, I think there used to be a social situation where men were sort of expected to leave home and start working. Yeah. And then build up the wherewithal to support a wife who stayed with her parents until she got married. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that ever happens anymore. No, it and doesn't. And yet we're still mired in, in that sort of perspective. Yeah, and there's all these things you have to kind of checked off before you can get married. Yeah, and I think the other thing is since the Industrial Revolution, I think physically, children grow up faster. Yeah. They don't develop good sense any faster, <laughs> but they start burning with passion at an earlier age. Yeah. And I think the church often tends to pretend that isn't there. Well, and I think society pretends like that doesn't matter. So what you ought to do is just kind of dabble a little bit and kind of you know sow some wild oats, and you know and then finally you'll figure out somebody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, and I think that the pressures yeah. on kids too to to be um, you know the successful person before you're married and things like that. It, the, the kids just feed into it, and I think the biggest part about our generation growing up is that we had to rely on each other to get to that point, you know, and, and, and yeah, you went through hard times, and yeah, you didn't have money all the time, and you couldn't go out all the time, but you had each other, and that's really truly what mattered. Yeah. You know, and, and that idea that, you know, you're going to find that person that you're committed to for life, um, you know, before you, uh, you know, before you engage in sex, you know, that, that's, that's a strange idea these days. Yeah. Yeah. I so, mean, uh, um, I think like marriage. That is a uh, that is the perfect biblical definition of how how a woman and a man can be engaged. Yes. To to do the right balance because the way women's brain functions is different than the way man brings functions. Yeah, that's the, true. the chemical way of a woman brings functions, they engage all the compartments and they, I'm, I'm talking about different compartmentalized. They engage all the compartments at the same time and that's how they proceed. The way the man brings functions, the chemicals where the man brings functions, they engage one compartment, they do one compartment, yeah. then another one, then another one. Male version is like more focused and like uh, more compartmentalized. Women's version is like less focused but more passionate. So we need to make a balance of that. And that's why there's the definition, there's the title of marriage, by which the biblical and the perfect in the nice way to make a, a nice balance. <coughs> Uh, yeah. Well, and, and that's that word complement that I mentioned earlier. That, that there are strengths and then there are weaknesses and, and they match up together and they build uh, something that's better at the end. Um, and uh, yeah, and so men and women are not the same and yeah. that's, that's a good thing and that's how God designed us to be. Um, so... Um, I think that's why there's more men that invent things than women do. Because they have to be totally focused on what they do, and you can't take them out of that box if they're doing yeah, what they're yeah, doing. I don't know. Where I women mean, are more I, like, you know, they can think about making dinner, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think about like Marie Dude, Curie. I, I mean, you know, I mean, there. there are some there are some brilliant women who have definitely. Um, well, I'm not saying the brilliant women aren't brilliant. But yeah, well, I, <laughs> I just I just have to say, as someone who's invented a few things, that it does not come from being focused. It comes from being uh, unfocused from from things that just occur sort of out of the blue more than, you know, there's some hard work that often has to be done in developing, but the inventor doesn't always have to, you know, you, you've got some people to work with. Sometimes you come up with the idea and someone else develops. Yeah. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a, a little of this and a little of that. Yeah, I, creativity, I think, lives in that tension of free-floating, relaxed mind and hard work. Yeah. You know, and, and you kind of experience both of those things, and yeah. So um, another uh, passage that talks about uh, marriage and First uh, Timothy chapter five verse fourteen, um, he says, "I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander." So the the idea that uh, that marriage is a good thing, it, it's very much there. It recognizes that you know there's a, a, a time where that relationship is broken, um, and uh, and can be re-entered. So, um, I want to give a word of caution uh, in, in this topic, and uh, it, there, there actually might be two words of caution in this. So, I'm going to talk about my family again. Because all my best bad examples come from my own family. Um, my grandma Kate. So this would be my my dad's mom. Um, she loved the Lord, and she, I have no doubt, is in heaven. And I have no doubt the reason that she is in heaven is because Jesus died for her, not because she was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so. Uh, my grandma Kate outmarried three men, or outlived three men. So my dad's dad died in, I want to say it was 69, and uh, by 1970, she was remarried. <laughs> you know, she could not stand to be alone. You know, and... Uh, um, after she died, we heard some rather scandalous stories about when she was younger. Um, you know, it, it sounds like she was kind of a, a wild woman. And, uh, and so the, the grandpa that I grew up with, um, you know, he died when I was a junior in high school. And I kid you not, it was a not, not more than a year and a half and she was married again. And then he died, we were in college. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I mean, they're older, you know. I mean, so yeah, <laughs> that that window tends to shrink. No offense. Um, and I, I kid you not, she would have married another guy. Um, you know, she she had Alzheimer's at this point, you know, and so um, my dad and my aunt stepped in and were like, no, we're not going down this road. Um, yeah. <laughs> There comes a point where, you know, Grandma, you need to stop. Um, well, I think passion is not the only thing you can burn with. Right. 
can burn with lowliness. That's true. That's true. Yeah. You know, and uh, so the one thought is make sure that, you know, if you're in that position, you're communicating with your family. They should not be shocked when, uh, you know, you get remarried. Just leave that there. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the other thing, I sometimes talk with people right after their, their spouse has died. I'm never going to love somebody again like that. Yeah, it's different. It is, but it doesn't mean never. Mm-hmm. It's possible. It's possible that after, you know, um, your spouse dies, that there could be... Um, another person who comes along and meets that complementary need. And if your spouse has died, guess what? You're actually free, free to pursue that. And that, that's important. You know, it, it, it's not an unfaithfulness. It's not a weakness. It, it's, marriage is good. You know, and it's part of God's plan for us. And, uh, and in that moment, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of emotion, and I get that. You know, and it would be hard to imagine, you know, in that moment that you, you know, could ever be happy again even. But... Well, I think that's important for family members too, you know. Like, yeah. There's sort of like a... You, like as a child, like you don't really want you to see a parent marry someone else, but you have to, you know, kind of... The understanding of that. Yeah. Be a need for them. Yep. It's not a betrayal. Right. It's yeah. not. I, it, it's, it's hard for me even to imagine someone who is dying saying to their spouse, Now, when I die, I don't want you to, right. to have That's anything to do with anybody else. Right. right. Because I want you for myself forever. <laughs> that doesn't happen. And most people would say, well, yeah, that would be silly. Yeah. But emotionally, yeah. the emotional stuff goes way beyond the facts and the rationality, and that's harder to deal with. And we're often more driven by the emotion than we are the rational thought. And, and this is one of the reasons that I bring it up you know, in this type of a context. The vows that we make are till death. And part of that is rooted in, in this passage, that when a marriage... You know, when a spouse dies, you know, it, it, it is legitimate. I have to wonder, in, in terms of context and changing times, yeah. globalization, that, you know, if this couple that's separated, the whole the importance of that person you're separated from being in the grave, huh? you probably have no contact with them. You, you, you may have no idea where they are or what they're doing. It sort of, it sort of feels weird. So say, I, holiness is in finding out the death certificate and, and verifying that before you get married. So um, what I'm hearing there is, is actually what we would say might be like a form of abandonment. You know, if you're if you're separated and can never get together again, yeah, or divorced. Yeah, and, and so the the passage today, the gospel lesson, speaks to this. Yeah. You know, that divorce and remarriage and adultery. 
Um, right. And uh, and I talked about this. I think I talked about this on Wednesday. That uh, you know we look at that and we say um, you know it's almost like we think we can't we can not sin. You know that even even in marriage we sin. You know and and so we rely on God's grace. Now I do think that the way that our society treats marriage and divorce is very problematic. You know, uh, it's more like a contract. You know, it can just be dissolved. You know, in, in terms of the legal system, than um, you know a, a covenant that is meant to be for life. And uh, you know, and, and I'm not saying that Christians are any better about this because our percentages are are right there. Um, and uh, um, but when we talk about remarriage in the case where there's an abandonment or a, a, a separation like that, um, that's, not a, that's not the same thing. You know, this is the end of a covenant. The other, you're sinning, but it might be better to sin than to continue in what you're in. Mm-hmm. And so we're gonna just, we're gonna hold on to God's grace and God's mercy. If, does that make sense? It does, but it opens up a whole, a whole area of prospective forgiveness. Yeah. And no matter what sin I want to do, it's just saying, well, grace will take care of it. I'll go ahead. And yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's something that requires some real seriousness. Yeah. You know, it, it, it cannot be entered into just kind of flippantly. You know, just right. It kind of the the way that we misuse the the phrase sin boldly. Yeah, yeah, sin boldly. That means I can do whatever I want. Yeah. No, it the actually first doesn't. Half mean that. of that is if you must sin. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you, know, you should feel confident, you know, when you sin that your sins are forgiven. That doesn't mean that you should plan to sin. Yeah. And Jill often said that when she did not slow down going past the police car. <laughs> said, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Let's pray, and uh, and we'll pick it up talking some more about widows and adultery uh, next week. Tell your friends we're going to talk about widows and adultery. That might be uh, just, I don't know, I'm just kidding. We might fill up this room, <laughs> and you'll have to have a huge microphone. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you we could be here. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we consider um, your word and as your word works in us. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us in all holiness and that you would help us to recognize how we have been set free from sin, that we might live in your holiness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.